I am joined by Vance Spencer, co-founder of Framework Ventures. Vance, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Long time listener. First time, uh, first time appearance, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's your first time. So Vance, yeah. you're very well known in the crypto world. Uh, you've had a lot of outspoken takes, and I mean that in the best possible way, um, just about sort of what's been going on in crypto and the the, the turmoil there. Uh, but for you know, a lot of my audience come from traditional finance, they're into you know the Federal Reserve, stocks, bonds, uh, who might not be familiar with you. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. What, what drew you into crypto and what sort of stuff do you do at Framework Ventures? Sure, yeah. Um, so, you know, started my career at Netflix in corporate development, worked there for five years, uh, quit Netflix, started and sold a small crypto gaming company. This was like, you know, 2017, 2018, when really nobody was even using games, let alone like crypto on, on blockchains. Um, and that was a good experience. And, and you know, used that money to start Framework Ventures with my co-founder, Michael, and we raised our first fund in 2018. Uh, we've since raised three more vehicles since that. Our last fund was 400 million. I, I believe we're one of the largest asset managers in the space today. And really kind of what Framework made our name on was the initial wave of DeFi. Um, so Aave, Synthetics, Curve, Uniswap, uh, you know, all of those, the graph, Chainlink, Wi-Fi, um, those became marquee investments that we led and, and really kind of developed alongside the entrepreneurs that actually built the protocols, like the DeFi, not only software and use cases, but but the culture. And I think that's probably what we're best known for. Since then, we've gone into things like crypto games and front ends and infrastructure and, and security products. But really at our heart, we're, we're a venture firm. We do take very concentrated liquid bets uh, in our portfolio. That's just like a nature of, of kind of being an asset manager in crypto. Um, but yeah, you know, we love crypto and it's been an interesting year, certainly not as bullish as 2021, but you know, I think it's, it's a pretty good time to be here, you know, and, and we're, you know, content where we are right now to, you know, slowly deploy and, and, you know, help bring about the rest of resuscitation of the industry. Yeah. Resuscitation. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so you launched during a bear market 2018, very good time to launch. Interestingly, Blockworks, a uh, company I work for was launched uh, during the same time period and it was an upward wave. And so, you know, if you if you have a crypto venture firm, you're investing in crypto, you like bull markets. At what point, Vance, did you begin to feel uncomfortable? Like, hmm, things might be a little bit too good. You know, pe- people, everyone's talking about crypto. The valuations are sky high. There, there's a lot of uh, uh, sort of stu- you know shenanigans that's going on that you, you, is not healthy to see. What was the first thing you saw that that sort of gave you pause? And uh, then we'll take it from there. Yeah, so we started in a bear market. You know, in the last bear market, it was just so embarrassing. There were no use cases. Everyone basically hated us. Nobody wanted to talk to us about the fund, let alone give us capital. And, and we were very fortunate to have only one outside LP in our first fund, um, which was later very fortunate. But you know, we were really looking for use cases at that point. And you know, blockchains were built for value transfer, so it made sense that DeFi would be the first one to really kind of get some sort of adoption. Um, and a lot of the reasons why I got adoption is because, you know, I didn't have anywhere else that I could get financial services. You know, I had a bunch of crypto, you know, stable coins didn't even exist at that point. How would I even use this productively? How could I get a loan against it? How could I make it, you know, productive? Like there just wasn't anything. And so Uniswap and Aave and Synthetics and Curve, like they came out and it made sense. And, you know, we were the vanguard of staking assets and being aggressive on chain and being in these DAOs. And, you know, that first 2019, 2020, and I, and I think like, you know, the, the beginning of 2021, that felt very organic. You know, it was the movement that was around in the bear market. We were all using the products, you know, we could feel the value. We didn't know how big the market would be, but we thought it would be massive. Um, and, you know, things started to turn with Sailor, you know, like we're going to put gold on, or Bitcoin on everyone's balance sheets. And, you know, he started giving these weird webinars and I got a little bit of, you know, red flags sticking up at that point, but I just thought it was, you know, part of the cycle. Uh, Elon started shilling Dogecoin. I thought that was just more of the speculative excesses of, of things like that. But really, when when I started to sense that things were going south was when kind of the metaverse and NFT stuff really started to pop its head up. That felt like really the the most pure form of the excess in the market. And you had that along with the rise of FTX and they're kind of getting into DeFi. And once they got into DeFi, I was I was you know pretty much on on high alert. And we did make some moves around that time to kind of de-risk some of the portfolio, but when when SBF and, and the FTX guys got in, it just felt like, you know, there was uh, sharks in the water and there was they smelled blood. It, that was kind of the vibe that I got, at least. Okay, interesting. So so the, they had been involved um, after Sam Bankman Fried started Alameda Research and then later launched FTX. 
Alameda Research was the, the prop shop hedge fund. FTX was the exchange. So they had existed for a long time. But what made you uncomfortable with just how big they got? And also, how had Sam Bickman-Fried's reputation evolved over time? You know, I feel like to a lot of people outside of the industry, they had a, for some reason, good impression of him. Uh, and, you know, he was given a lot of positive media coverage. Uh, but was, you know, were, were insiders like you skeptical of him? And, uh, yeah, how did your sort of thinking about him change? Why did FTX, his rise, make you uncomfortable? What were you afraid of? <laughs> not, not afraid of, of anything, but I, I think um, a little bit of more context is that we've always been very vocally anti-SBF, anti-Solana, anti-decentralization, you know, and, and what we thought was a weird perversion of the values of, of why we got into the space to start. And so we've kind of been the perennial, you know, bears on SPF. And, you know, for a while that looked really dumb. People thought that, you know, that was like not a great strategy and it, and it wasn't for a long time. But, you know, spiritually, we're Ethereum people. That's what I think, you know, we're invested in. And I separate Ethereum from kind of the rest of crypto because Ethereum is, is the thing that embodies the values that, that I really care about. Decentralization, transparency, you know, an open permissionless platform that anybody can build or transact on. Those are the things that I care about. But... When, when SBF really got into, uh, you know, DeFi was around the time that he raised for Serum, the SRM token. And, you know, we had passed on FTT. Uh, we had, we had, you know, entertained Serum and, and then passed on it, but we kind of kept tabs on the round. And I remember the thing that I remember the most was at a certain point during the middle of the round, they doubled the valuation from like 250 to 500 million. And we asked like why or, or who got what or like who would be in which tranche. And they just didn't really seem to care. It was really just like this run and gun financing to get as much value out of this prospective token as possible. And it felt like at that point, you had two versions of DeFi. You had DeFi, Ethereum-based, decentralized, robust, permissionless smart contracts. And then you had SBF kind of saying like, all right, you Ethereum kids have done all right. I'm going to take it from here and institutionalize it. And it's going to look like this. Um, and once that happened and once you had the bandwagon of Scaramucci and, you know, all these big firms giving him money. It just felt like he was going to run with the DeFi idea and just make it a strange perversion of itself. And that's when it got a little, a little dicey. Yeah. So I, I just pulled up the balance sheet that was leaked by the Financial Times um, of FTX. And so before FTX basically melted down, they were valuing their Serum tokens at $5.4 and their FTT tokens at $5.9 billion. Can you talk about the valuation uh, techniques? Basically, you know, if, if uh, why might those valuations be uh, not accurate? And I'll specifically highlight just how few of them that actually existed were trading, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is it was a seven-year lockup, yeah. uh, extremely unheard of, and you kind of slowly drip-fed tokens to the market. At one point, Serum traded at over a hundred billion dollar valuation. Um, and I think it was like less than 2% of the float was, was available. And so this thing was like financial napalm from the start designed to torch retail if they got anywhere close to it. And, and that is kind of the thing that made us feel deeply uncomfortable. If you look at a lot of the DeFi, you know, the Ethereum DeFi fair launches and the token distributions, the tokens were given away for free, the whole supply in many contexts. Um, you know, if that wasn't the case, all the transparent vesting schedules were out there and people could understand where tokens were. We're sitting relative to the full, fully diluted valuation, and, and that was good. But with Serum, they didn't seem to really care about any of that. Um, and, you know, we passed on it, and it felt like a dumb idea that we passed on it for a while. And people were kind of giving us shit that, you know, SPF was going to be the next, uh, you know, the Warren Buffett, the JP Morgan, all, you know, all of the comparisons that people make. Um, but you looked on chain, you could see Serum, and you could see the activity. And Serum, for people who don't know, it's a central limit order book. And so unlike AMMs like Uniswap, where everyone pools their capital together and you're trading against a contract, in Serum, you can actually see the, the makers and takers that are making the order book. And on a given daily basis, 90% of the liquidity was facilitated by Alameda. And so you just had this weird like Russian doll of like circular money flow and just what seemed like, you know, at least if not fraudulent, then ethically dubious. Um, and that was just the other thing that didn't sit well with us. Yeah, and... What was it about Solana? Because uh, Solana is what's you know known as an L1 or a layer one, which I don't really understand. But basically, it's like a, a base layer upon which other things are built. So Bitcoin's an L1, Ethereum's an L1, 
Solana was sort of uh, there. There meant many, many others, but Solana was hyped as oh, this can actually take over Ethereum. You know, Ethereum is the dominant L1 in terms of applications uh, right now, and it, and it was a year ago. Many other layer ones, but Solana was okay. This can it's faster. It has all these better things. You said you were a skeptic of Solana. Why? And then also, what's the relationship between Solana and Sam Bankman Fried? So, I mean, we're a skeptic of, of a lot of L1s. And, you know, if you look at the valuation of these things, just, you know, to give you a context of the whole landscape, crypto applications are actually fairly easy to value. You value them on a free cash flow basis, plus a multiple, you know, assuming that they return the cash flows to the shareholders. Some tokens do, some are going to in the future, but that's generally how you value them. If you look at the DeFi applications, they traded high multiples for sure, probably 50 times earnings. These things are growing really quickly. Like you, you don't really have access to this fast of growth in public markets, but like, you know, that's a, that's a premium for DeFi apps and they all trade within that range. If you look at L1s, the L1s have very, very little fees, but they have these huge multiples to justify their, their valuation. And, and you know, why is that? An L1 is basically a euphemism for saying, well, this could be valued like Ethereum potentially at some point. And Ethereum is valued like it's valued, A, because it has a lot of fees, but B, you know, it has this chance to become this form of internet money, this internet bond that pays you yield if you buy it and you stake it and you earn fees from the digital transactions that happen on chain. And so like all of these L1s are basically uh, martingale pumps towards where Ethereum is valued. Uh, and then, you know, you hope that the VCs can get out by the time the fully diluted valuation converges with the circular, the circulating market cap. And these things have just torched investors. And that's why we don't like them. We've really never invested in any other L1s in ETH. And again, we're ETH people. That's kind of, you know, what we're spiritually aligned with. Um, and so, you know, what's the connection between SPF and Solana? Some reports say that SPF owned like 10 to 12% of Sol tokens. I, I think that's right, just based on kind of the flows that we've seen on chain and, and things that we've heard. Um, so number one, that's crazy. You know, a token distribution for something that has a chance to be money, one guy shouldn't own 12%. Imagine one guy owning 12% of all the US dollars or gold in the world. Just like doesn't make any sense. The second one was, you know, what was happening to the client funds on the back end? If you look at this whole L1 wave, layer one wave of last year, it was all based on Solana going really high in terms of price and everybody else saying, okay, cool. If Solana can get that high, maybe we can too. The problem with that idea in retrospect is that it is highly likely that SBF, in my opinion, sold his clients ETH and Bitcoin and bought Solana and the other SAM coins that were part of this, you know, net worth calculation. Yep. And so that valuation model is broken. And that's the other reason that even in retrospect, we don't really like these old L1 investments. It comes down to the basic fact pattern of we need to build things that people want to use. We need to build things that generate fees. Uh, and that's kind of the whole point of the industry. Um, and if you're not doing that and you're not Ethereum or Bitcoin and you don't have a chance to be money, I don't really know what the value prop is. And yeah, let's do a little bit of a, a crypto health check. We're recording at the end of 2022. How would you assess it given that we had the you know shocking collapse of FTX uh, and, you know, potential contagion to other crypto firms, um, you know, uh, Genesis ending their uh, uh, halting withdrawals on their um, lending platform? Uh, Gemini's, you know, fate hangs in the balance. It has been hanging in the balance for, for a long time now. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot of people uh, saying that Binance has very similar issues to FTX. I mean, is it just FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt, or is there, uh, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire? So, yeah, what, give us a crypto health check. Crypto health check. We're down by like four touchdowns at the half, and, you know, we got them right where we want them. I think that's kind of the perspective. It's so bad that it's good. We've washed out basically all of the you know really scammy and fraudulent product products that were at really big scale carrying those carcasses forward just is not a good plan for the industry and i'm glad that we got it done now um and so like you know we've kind of washed the the bad folks out we've washed a lot of the credit and the leverage out like we've reset in the way that many industries do um but the ground truth is that you know DeFi has product market fit games are starting to scale you know it's not huge yet but like crypto games are going to be coming next year and right now they have 100, 200K daily active users. If you have a few million a month, you know, that's pretty good. Like we can scale that 10X and it'll be the biggest applications that are on crypto. Um, ETH transition to proof of stake. Um, the merge went successfully. There's a lot to be excited about. Um, I also think it's just been a terrible year. I was looking at the Carvana chart the other day, just like 99.5% down. It's, you know, last bear market, it was just crypto. And everyone hated us and it was like basically the same thing. But like this time, it's like all of these assets around us have really taken it uh, right in the face. And I think you, you, you kind of wonder, 
okay, you know, will Robinhood ever hit its all-time high again? Will Carvana ever hit its all-time high again? What tailwinds are they riding? What's going to change about the business to make it successful? I have a hard time coming up with a bull case for a lot of those types of stocks, growth stocks, things like that. But you look at crypto, you know, there's so much developer innovation. There's so much, you know, there's so many people that care about this industry. You know, regulation is now on the table and that's a really positive thing. A lot of the application categories are starting to be proven out. Like it feels like there's a lot more meat on the bone left in web three than there is in web two. How many more SaaS marketplaces do we need? Do we really need another stock trading app? Like those are the things when we talk to LPs, that's why they're still excited about crypto. It's, you know, yes, it's bad right now, but there's a lot of tailwinds that we're riding. Yeah, I'd say that um, sort of crypto in TradFi circles, crypto can be seen as like the hallmark of the everything bubble in 2020 and 2021. But I think in some regards, that's unfair because I think that in terms of total amount of dollars lost, I mean, I think the excess was definitely much more in SPACs, in yes, SaaS companies that, you know, basically would have to be entirely new companies for them to ever be profitable. I think crypto is like kind of a, a convenient uh, a scapegoat. I want to ask um, how much do you think macro impacts crypto? Like, do you think crypto still would have had a bad year if the macro was more favorable and the stocks markets went up and bond yields remained low? And also to, uh, how responsible for crypto's meteoric rise in 2021 and 2020 was the favorable backdrop of negative, you know, negative real interest rates and tons of money printing and tons of, uh, you know, speculation, speculative fervor. And also, are you a believer in the the cycles? The cycles? Um, I mean, interest rates definitely had an impact. Uh, it had an impact on everything. Uh, and I think the most damaging, you know, of the interest rates is not uh, anything specific. It's the cumulative impact of all these animal spirits being removed by, you know, stocks are going down, crypto's weak. You know, it, it just kind of took a lot of the excitement out of the room. I, I do think it was uh, going to happen, this crash, whether, you know, now or later. Something like a Luna, just, you know, it's a perpetual motion machine. It's not going to continue forever. Same with FTX. At some point, that fraud would have been found out. And if it would have had been at an even bigger scale, imagine if the DCCPA, the legislation that SBF was pushing, had passed. He'd gotten into the U.S. and then you'd blown up even bigger. Imagine if Luna had been, you know, a $500 billion application. I'm just glad that the damage was relatively limited, even though it was deeply embarrassing. Um, so interest rates definitely had a, a lot to do with it. Um, and I think the other thing is that right now, and a lot of crypto's use cases are financialized. When you look at you know the transactions on chain, um, you can see it in the usage. At the very peak of the bull run of last year, there was about ten to fifteen thousand Ethereum per day being spent. At about a five thousand dollar per ETH basis, spent as so, in being being burned or being bought, b- being used for transactions. So okay. like using DeFi, using NFTs, playing a game, transferring assets. So Ethereum was doing seventy five million dollars of revenue that was pure profit per day, being passed to stakeholders at the top of the last bull market. Wait, sorry, explain the when it's being passed to stakeholders. It's being if you were a validator, you were getting paid, but then back then it was it was miners. So sorry, what does that mean? Seventy five million. So so in in a proof of stake world, uh, and the proof of stake, the bridge contract had lo- launched, uh, you know, last January. When you're an Ethereum staker, you stake your Ethereum, which you bought, and you earn transaction fees from it. You get about twenty percent of the transaction fees. The other eighty percent are burnt. So you have the deflation impact, and you have the the revenue impact that goes straight to you. But the point I was trying to say is. Last year, $75 million per day at the peak at bull run. Right now, you look, there's about three or 4,000 ETH being spent per day. And it's being spent at around, you know, $1,200 cost basis right now. Mm-hmm. And so that's about six to seven million. And so the revenue of Ethereum, the use cases have dropped 90%. And so it's not just like this speculative bubble that had deflated. People are actually using crypto less as a result. And that has been the impact of the interest rates, in my opinion, um, because a lot of this activity is currently financialized, but that is okay. That is how we actually build useful applications. We actually need this. Right. Okay. So so a lot of that 90% fall in activity is just due to the, to the token price collapsing. And this is something that you know, I first got into crypto, like many people, in near the top of 2017. And I started looking to the valuation metrics. And um, a lot of them were just purely based on how many 
the, the total uh, dollar amount of dollar tr- uh, of transactions per day. And it drove me crazy because it's co- if, if, if the coin goes from a dollar to a hundred dollars and the volume stays the same, the, the daily traded volume is going to go up a hundred times. So it's, it's ridiculously self uh, justification of, of evaluation it's, metrics. It's so, super reflexive, which yeah, exactly. is That's it's good and bad. You know, George Soros would say, this is an industry that can generate, you know, its own valuation at any price, you know, it, because it's circular, right? But on the downside, it can collapse 90%. Our hope is that this stabilizes eventually and we don't actually have to go through this and that we provide these useful use cases which persist versus bull and bear and, and don't rely on the token price itself. Right. Okay. And so under the current proof of stake model, validators are paid, but that only happened recently because of the merge. So how was it that the fees were being generated under the mining system? And then you also mentioned something about a bridge. So uh, Ethereum launched what was called the beacon chain. And the beacon chain was effectively the placeholder chain, which we're, we're now operating on. Uh, but you could stake your Ethereum there and it worked in parallel with proof of work. And so the proof of stake people would, would be earning rewards from the beacon chain. And the proof of work miners were actually earning rewards as well. Oh, and, so and so, staked ETH, Steeth. Uh, so th- there's a few different forms of staked Ethereum. There's Steeth, there's like uh, staking it through like Figment or Coinbase or things like that where you don't actually get a receipt token, but like it's kind of all the same thing with regards to, you know, staking Ethereum and getting rewards back. Okay, okay, okay. So uh, activity is down, but also um, the the, do- the dollar value is down. So if, so that, that that makes sense. Um, yeah, in, in terms of, you said va- the valuation metrics for... DeFi projects are relatively simple. Walk us through that for Ethereum and other things you track. Because uh, I think um, you know a lot of people think of crypto as something that has no valuation metric. And I, you know, I think for something like uh, Bitcoin or most L1s or you know a lot of you know if there are twenty thousand crypto projects listed on uh, Coin Market Cap, a lot of those would be impossible to value on something that you know a traditional value investor would consider a valuation metric. But it sounds like you're saying that some of them are, and I'm, I'm really interested in that. So tell, tell us more. There's not a ton. There's like, you know, 10 or, or 15 or 20. And, and I think that that's totally fine. Uh, like some people choose to see the, you know, the hundreds of projects that didn't make it and the copy paste projects that were very low effort. But there are actually a few projects that are generating mid eight figures, low nine figures of revenue um, and that are passing it to token holders in some way, shape or form. And, and that ranges from Ethereum, which is probably going to have, you know, two billion of, of, of you know, earnings this year to things that are smaller like MakerDAO and Lido, which, you know, Lido will probably have 60 million of earnings. Um, MakerDAO will probably have, you know, probably 100, 110 million. Like, and, and Lido is a liquid staking protocol where, they actually facilitate the asset Steeth, uh, and you stake ETH and you receive Steeth. And the Steeth allows you to have a receipt token, so you can actually generate, use liquidity, use it productively, but you also still accrue rewards that token. It. And the thing that Lido provides is a validator set to Ethereum to run the actual protocol. So they're downstream of Ethereum making money there. MakerDAO is a stablecoin. You can look at it as you know kind of like a bank, but they have their own currency, and they have you know they earn a spread between. Um, you know, between the lending rate and, and what they charge people. And they also earn money for printing DAI and giving it to people like Coinbase who then go buy treasuries and give MakerDAO, you know, some of the proceeds back. And so the, are these business models a little strange? 100% they are. Um, but I think that's the, the point. And, and the really cool thing about them is they cost very, very little to run. Like, look at Lido. 60 million in earnings this year. The DAO spends about 10 million per year in, in software maintenance costs. But if ETH goes up, if yields go up, if usage goes up, Lido is going to have, you know, a 10, 20 X increase in cash flows. And that is going to be the thing that scales while their operating costs stay the exact same. And those are the very powerful business models that are only facilitated by open source software built on blockchains that I think is like the really interesting thing in the shadow of this like growth collapse in tech. Why did the growth stocks collapse? Because none of them are actually profitable. They couldn't actually scale their unit economics beyond their costs. But you look at these things on crypto, and then there's not a lot of them. They're kind of strange, but they actually have the operating leverage, which makes them able to, you know, justify these big valuations and big multiples. And if you think that crypto is riding tailwinds, these revenues are just going to increase to the degrees those those tailwinds play out. And that's what's exciting. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. 
Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. All right. So you worked at Netflix. Yeah. Can you just speak to big big tech because you know things like google and apple are just money printing machines and you know meta facebook formerly was a, a cash printing machine but yeah so many businesses that we assume are profitable if you look at the numbers just are, are simply not like I'll, I'll just name warby parker you know everyone wears warby parkers but i looked at the financials and after the stock had been down 80 percent, and it's still you know nowhere close to making money it's not just you know brick and mortar places either snapchat has never turned to profit you know, how do these things continue to go on as a going concern? And I think in the early year, in the 2010s, it was a lot of debt, you know, and a lot of low interest rates doing stock buybacks and recapitalizing the company. Um, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of these things are just not going to stand the test of time in terms of being able to scale out of their operating costs. And, you know, it's not like these things are not being used. There's, you know, my nephews, my cousins still use Snapchat. It's a huge cultural thing. It's just that they're getting squeezed by Apple. And they don't really have that much pricing power to start with. Um, mm-hmm. And that is symptomatic of a lot of the kind of mid-2010 style businesses. But I think Elon's going to run the A-B test with Twitter in real time and see if you can actually buy one of these things as kind of like a private equity style play and, and strip the costs out and keep it running. And I think he's going to be successful. Um, I don't think you can do it with places like Snapchat because Evan Spiegel has all the votes. Netflix is, is probably too big to even consider doing anything like that with. And so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out um, because a lot of these things can never be profitable. A lot of these things have governance problems. A lot of these things, just all the best employees have left to go do something else. Um, it's going to be a weird time for tech. It's like a midlife crisis. Let, let's just talk about Genesis and the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust for now because that that seems like a big shooter drop. If it is. Yeah. Um, so to take it back to where it started, it all starts with this asset called GBTC which is a trust uh, and the trust works as follows. You can put Bitcoin into the trust and you create GBTC. Uh, you get charged 2% per year uh, for, for putting your Bitcoin in. That's how Grayscale makes money. Um, but you cannot redeem. There is no redemption mechanism because it is not a, an actual ETF. And so the only way to get out of this is to sell your GBTC and you know, like this wouldn't sound like such a bad idea at the start, but if you consider it, you know, in a different light, you know, it's like there's this money in a box and you can't take it out and it's only worth whatever people will pay for the box. And so like, how do you actually value the box? And there's maybe, you know, in the distant future in four or five years, like a vague promise that the box might be open and you can take the money out. But like, that's the basic value proposition. But instead of it just being like a box with money in it, it's a box with Bitcoin in it, but you can't actually get it out. Um, and so... You look at, you know, like, and, and Sue and Kyle were, were people that I met in the last bear market. And, you know, who they, they seemed like for our audience, who are they? They're, they're the, the co founders of Three Arrows Capital, a very large Singapore based hedge fund, or, or was a big Singapore based bet hedge fund. I think at their peak, they had like 10 or 12 billion of something of assets. I don't know if that balance sheet was correct or not. There was allegations of like, you know, balance sheet fraud and things like that, but we can get to that in a second. Um, the first time that I really saw them operate at scale was they announced that they had, I think, like 7% of the GPTC trust. And it was something like 270,000 Bitcoin. And, and kind of how I knew, how I had known Sue and Kyle was medium-sized traders, you know, punch like a million-dollar ticket on a trade, something like that. Like the idea that they would have 272,000 Bitcoin lying around was crazy to me. And so at that point, I was like, you know, they had gotten access to some new source of capital. And the fact that it was GPTC, you know, and, and, you know, Genesis had been known to lend to them kind of made it seem like it might be more of like they were doing something together. 
Uh, and I think the non-charitable version or interpretation of uh, the events that followed were uh, Sue uh, Three Arrows gave uh, Genesis BTC um, or GBTC. Genesis would give them back US dollars, which they would then use to buy GBTC, which they would then post to Genesis and they would get more USD, which they would buy GBTC again. And so like Genesis would allow them to like circularly lever up. Um, and the Wait, I'm, sorry, I'm, having, I'm having a hard time understanding this. So there was a time when the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust traded at a premium and then it traded at a discount and mm -hmm. the discount has only gotten worse. Which of those two premium or discount was an arbitrage opportunity and which of those two sort of burned people in the space? Because I know when it was at a, trading at a premium, you could buy Bitcoin, uh, present it and then be given GBTC, which you could sell. And that was a nice arbitrage. Um, so which, which of the which of those which of those trades burned people? And how, which was burned uh, in three hours capital? How did they end up owing six, seven percent of it? So, so it wasn't like you know it was two distinct trades. The 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 wrinkle in the in trading gen or creating GPT shares generally is that I will give you Bitcoin, and then six months later, you'll give me GBTC. Mm. And so, if I give you Bitcoin at you know a sixty percent premium, and then by the time that I go to actually get my GBTC shares, it's now a discount. I just got completely hosed. Yeah. And so you kind of needed to lock out on that six month timing window. And like, it's funny, like you can see the premium persist for like six to seven months and then just like drop off the face of the planet. Cause you know, you could just tell that someone had really just taken their shares and then hit the bid and, and collapsed it. But like that was my theory in terms of why three years initially got in trouble. They were circularly levering up this GBTC trade. They had to wait six months for shares. And by the time they actually got their shares, the discount was so material that they kind of got blown out on their original loan. And that probably is what created a lot of the holes in a lot of these lenders' balance sheets. And, and I think that Three Arrows still owes DCG and Genesis like $600 million or something like that. So they blew up pretty good. Yeah, they, they blew up pretty good. And then there were other CFI lenders, centralized finance lenders, where you could earn yield. And then I don't think this is a big feature of the 2017 bull market. Didn't hear yield a lot back then. But in 2020 and 2021, it's all about yield. Oh, you buy Bitcoin at $10,000, it goes to $60,000. Vance, that's great. But that's just the beginning. You can stake your Bitcoin and you can get paid 10%, 20%. And then there were, there were protocols that were paying 80,000%. I mean, I don't, I still don't understand how these things generate the yield. So I guess there's two buckets. One, the the palpably ridiculous, you know, uh, DeFi yields and how that worked, and the second one is the uh, ridiculous, but but at least you could it could seem like we're, it's a totally different model of ten percent yields that actually ended up causing more destruction than the than the openly uh, ridiculous yields. But uh, yeah, I guess let's start with that. Like when Celsius said, "Oh, you can get ten percent or fifteen percent." Where did that yield come from? <laughs> That is that is a great question. Um, so the the funniest part is like, you know, there were and we, we were very vocally anti Celsius, and you know, there's a lot to unpack there. We don't need to get into it right now, but um, basically, their CEO would go on uh, CNBC and say things like, you know, you can stake your Bitcoin with us. There is no staking for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a proof of work system. It does not endogenously generate yield. And so, you know, the question is, how is he getting yield on that? Well, there's a few sources of native yield for Bitcoin. You know, you can lend it to someone who goes off and takes the risk to create GBTC trades or shares. And, you know, if they're lucky, they time it right. Or if they're unlucky, they kind of get blown out. And they probably got blown out lending Bitcoin to people who did that. The other one is just lending it to people who would sell it for dollars and then who would go buy other assets. Uh, and then you're short synthetically Bitcoin that you owe customers and you're long other assets or, or you're long this credit agreement. But this was not a feature of the last cycle. The idea that, you know, things like BlockFi and Celsius and Voyager could quasi act as banks because of some weird exemption around digital assets and, you know, rehypothecate and do fractionalized banking and, and, you know, they had terms of service, which people thought that they were just depositing into like a Coinbase style exchange. But instead it was, you know, your property now belongs to Celsius and we can do whatever we want with it. Not surprising that we got torched by that uh, in retrospect. Uh, I think there was some hope in the industry that these things were better managed generally. But I think the incentives were so skewed to lend and get yield and get returns that the industry kind of got ahead of itself. Yield on stable coins being high during a bull market 
makes sense to me because if everyone wants to get leveraged long Bitcoin, they they could borrow at eight percent and ten percent, and that can be a profitable business. But in a bull market, it doesn't make sense to me why Bitcoin would generate ten percent because to me, the reason that you borrow something is to short it. And who wants to short something in a bull market? I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, the the weird part about Bitcoin and, and why we you know the fund has really never held Bitcoin in any meaningful capacity is. If you get Bitcoin, what can you do with it? You can't stake it. Uh, how can you get a loan against it? Well, you need to send it to some centralized counterparty and, and you know get them to send you dollars and hopefully your Bitcoin comes back someday. If you have wrapped Bitcoin, at least you can put it in DeFi and, and make productive use of it. You can do different things. You can generate yield with it. You can you know get a permissionless loan against it. Uh, really, Bitcoin became this, I don't want to say toxic asset, but it just became where all of the problems really started to occur especially because the GBTC trade was so levered. Um, and yeah. Okay, tell, tell, tell me about that. So this is a macro show. You know, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist, but I feel like a lot of people who are closest to the macro in crypto are like tend to focus on, on Bitcoin. And you are, uh, you know, you like, you're an Ethereum, you like ETH, uh, not Bitcoin. Um, well, I may, I may grant you that, you know, the lack of utility of Bitcoin, but uh yeah, why, why? Where do you see the problems of Bitcoin in terms of the cycle? Wasn't were, were the problems in terms of the centralized lenders that lent against it, as well as the sort of uh, promise of all these yields in in, in DeFi? So I, I think you know to do a non-exhaustive list of, of Bitcoin problems last year, uh, the first one and really the only one that I care about is just the lack of transaction fees, and the lack of transaction fees has no connotation of whether Bitcoin is good or bad. It just has a connotation towards people using it or not using it. And people do not use Bitcoin. You can see it in the adjectives that are used to describe it, you know, hodl or, you know, put it away in cold storage and never touch it. Or, you know, this is like money for the next thousand years. Like, like Sailor would say, it's just a, it's a culture of dormancy and not using it. And if you look at Ethereum, stake it, swap it. You can use it for NFTs. You can, it's the internet money of crypto. It is an internet bond that generates yield. It like, there is so much that you can do about it. And the community is building new apps and new front ends and new ways to use it. That's why we like ETH and, and it's borne out by the transaction fees. ETH right now has no inflation because it is so used and it burns enough ETH to keep it at neutral. Bitcoin has 4% inflation per year. Minor capitulation is the biggest issue in the industry right now. And it's just crushing the Bitcoin price. Minor capitulation, okay. Meaning, yes, yeah, so the total amount of Bitcoin... Uh... It goes down, hash rate, whatever. I'm not going to pretend to understand it. But you're saying, yeah, the miners who have mined it, they keep it on their balance sheet. First of all, the miners, what's going on with the miners? Okay, what? Why, if you if you have a copper company, you know, you mine copper, you might hedge a little bit by selling some copper futures, but you you know you, you'd be safe. But I, I'm, it's I don't think Bitcoin miners they don't they don't short Bitcoin miners to hedge, do they? They, they they do, and 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 that's what a lot of the industry of like the futures and Bitmax and like that stuff was created to do is allow Bitcoin miners to hedge, but Bitcoin miners don't hedge. You know, yep. they're, they're kind of playing the same directional game as everybody else where, you know, a Bitcoin that they mine for $5,000 is going to be worth a hundred thousand someday. Um, and so you have that. And I think the other thing that I think about is um, it looks like real estate to people in a strange way. I have this physical asset that I put in the ground and it, I turn it on and it generates yield and it pays for itself and I can pay down the debt. Um, but it's just not like that. And the crypto industry is not stable enough to invest in like the real estate industry is. And, you know, even today, Core Scientific filed for bankruptcy. And you look at all these miners and what are the first things that they start to sell uh, when things get bad? It's their Bitcoin. And then they start to sell their machines. And then they try to keep the lights on. And then they all fire for bankruptcy. And this is like the third cycle we've done this. And, you know, Ethereum doesn't have that problem. You just have people staking ETH that they own. It's software. Right. So your criticism of Bitcoin um, as something that people want to hold rather than use, I I've uh, thought that criticism and I I've shared it publicly before. It's like the hardest money isn't necessarily the best money. If I'm super bullish on Bitcoin, why would I ever buy coffee with Bitcoin? Because buying coffee with Bitcoin is going short Bitcoin. It's, sell it's selling Bitcoin, right? My question is, in what way is Ethereum different? You know, I, I presume you sound like a guy who's pretty bullish on Ethereum. Why would you ever use Ethereum or ever use ETH, Ether, um, if you think it's going to go up? Because then you're just getting rid of it. 
I'm not asking you to buy a cup of coffee with Ethereum. I'm asking you to use stable coins. Uh, and when you use stable coins, you pay the network gas. When you pay the network gas, that becomes a transaction fee. When Ethereum has more transaction fees, the security of the network gets even better. There's lower inflation. People earn more yield for hold, holding Ethereum. And so like, I don't know if ETH is money. I think it's more like an internet bond where if you think it, I think of all the transaction fees and the sources of security that's that are keeping the network up. It's people that are sending stablecoins, sending remittances, using DeFi, using NFTs. And at some point, you know, if we have bad inflation enough where, you know, we all need to, you know, get guns and, you know, provisions and we're using Ethereum as money, like, I think that's, that's okay. That's certainly not the world that I'm kind of gearing towards. I'm a technology guy. You know, I see people, developers building applications. I see new emergent behavior. And I see this thing generating tons of free cash flow at basically 100% margin. And that's what gets me excited. I'm not a doomsday prepper. You know, I don't have, you know, Bitcoin and gold yeah. in, in my basement. It's just like not how I live my life. And I think that's where crypto is going. It, it's going to more of a pragmatist, less of an ideologue uh, type of market. Right. Okay. So walk me through the valuation of ETH. How much uh, free cash flow does ETH generate? How does that compare to the total market cap of ETH? And then if I can throw another question, uh, what what is the percentage? What's the pie chart look like of, oh, 20% comes from NFTs, 20% come from stable coins uh, versus, versus other things? So this year, Ethereum will do probably about one and a half to two billion in, in revenue. And I'm just like looking at, at my chart over here. That puts it at, you know, and, and this, this, it fluctuates based on uh, the spend of ETH per day. That's at least how I think about it. I think about it on a daily basis. And so some days when NFTs drop or games launch or things are more bullish, you're going to get like, you know, four or five or 6,000 ETH spent at 1.2K per ETH. Um, some days the price of ETH will rise. And so the revenue will rise even more. And so it, it's pretty volatile, but. It's trading at around 150 to 200 PE, you know, on a, on a general basis. And, you know, is that expensive? Yes, it, it is. But the promise of Ethereum is a new type of computer, a new type of money potentially that's extremely leveraged, leveraged towards this digital economy that's building on chain. And so, you know, you kind of have to make a judgment call on, on whether to pay for that or not. Whether that's too expensive for you or not, but the point is, is that it has access to this new market of becoming money. And that is why, you know, in my mind, it has such a valuation premium. If I can hold Ethereum, use it as money and earn yield on it from everyone else using it, that is something that does not exist in traditional technology today. I, I did a study. We, we have a lot of engineers on our team and, and all of this data is open source and it updates every 13 seconds, every time a block is confirmed. So it's really cool. You can see financials in real time and look at it. And the question I had was, the higher the Ethereum price, the less people should want to spend. Like that, that makes sense, right? Um, but actually what I found was the opposite. And what I said before, yeah. when Ethereum was at $5,000, 4,900, whatever, people were spending 10 to 15,000 Ethereum per day. And when the price is lower at 1.2K, people are spending, you know, two to three to four to 5K per day. And so it's this weird Veblen money good where the more expensive it, maybe it reflects the bullishness of the space, maybe, you know, explains all these emerging applications, the higher the price of Ethereum, the more people want to spend it. And, you know, you can say that that's a good or a bad thing, but it is reflexive by definition. And that is, I think, what I look for in a lot of things in terms of how big of a market can this get to? What is the level of escape velocity it needs to achieve to really get there? For Ethereum, it doesn't actually look to be that high because people spend more ETH the higher it goes. And, and again, that's probably a reflection of, of more of a bull market than anything else, but the point still stands. Yes, but that also means that they, they use ETH less the lower it goes. So, so my question is, is ETH, even though the price of ETH is, is you know, a fraction of what it once was at the highs, is it now more, quote, highly valued, has a higher valuation than it was at the peak of $4,800 per ETH? So the answer is, is that the price has gone down from 4,900 to 1,200. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, the amount of ETH spent per day, and so like call that an 80% decline. Mm -hmm. And the amount of ETH spent per day has also gone down probably about 80% as well. And so on a relative basis, you know, those two should net out. The price is 80% lower, but the amount of ETH spent per day is also 80% lower. And so, you know, 
Maybe it's a little bit over or under on a daily basis, but generally it's reset within the same type of valuation band as it was before. Okay. Um, so, so like, so let, let me put, let me put the converse to you to explain it. If Ethereum price had stayed the same yeah, and the amount of ETH spent per day had declined 80%, then it would be five times higher in terms of its, its price to fee valuation ratio. But okay, if they okay. both drop at the same rate, then it should equalize. What would you say are the, you know, contagion risks within crypto going forward we've seen them oh uh celsius went down that causes problems for ftx ftx goes down that causes problems for gemini uh but what what's next what, what do you think are some of the next uh, uh shoes to drop are they mostly in the centralized finance the cfi space i do think like the obvious ones are genesis and dcg resolution i mean i've actually been impressed by how specifically gemini has handled that with Hulahan loki they're putting together a thoughtful plan. They're being very transparent and public about it. Like I'm hopeful that that gets to a good resolution. Um, seems like Grayscale is kind of off the table in terms of being wound down and distributed, uh, and that was like a big thing that was scary, you know, a week or a month ago. Um, just because that's you know, 10, 15 billion of sell pressure of Bitcoin and ETH coming to the market if that has to happen. There's still a lot of lenders that are kind of like, you know, coming out of the woodwork, raising their hands saying like, yep, I, I got killed too. Um, but that's, you know, the, those are the smaller ones, a lot of Asian ones as well. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, Binance, I, I don't think is insolvent. Um, they have $64 billion in a cold wallet. CZ is generally good for the money. I think there's like a weird translation barrier between the East and the West, like seeing him on CNBC and they're kind of asking him these like potentially somewhat misleading questions. And he's kind of like messing up his answers just because there's a little bit of an accent there. I don't think he's actually, you know, in any sort of trouble. Um, maybe Bybit, you know, that's another one. A lot of retail, Southeast Asian exchange. Like we don't really know what the state of their reserves is, but all of the big ones have been taken off the table. Um, you know, is it a bottom? We don't know, but it feels like there's been enough pain where if you look at the 2018 fractal, same thing, you know, had the big collapse earlier in the year, we kind of hung around at the same level. And then in December, November, at that point, the miners capitulated in 2018, but at this point it was FTX, but it looks very, very similar. And so that's at least the hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, what, um, what percentage of ETH like revenues, roughly, you know, you don't have to look it up, come from stable coins? And then is that all stable coins or just a, a, you know, a small number of them? I know the biggest stable coin is Tether, which is, you know, what I think more than half of all stable coins in terms of size. Let me look. Um, and for people that are out there, if they ever want to look at uh, Ethereum use cases and, and where the burn comes from or where the revenue comes from ultrasound.money mm. on a daily basis gives you a really good idea. And so today, you know, OpenSea is the number one consumer of Ethereum gas. Uniswap is the number two. Transferring ETH is number three. And then Tether is, you know, six or seven. So it's actually a good, pretty good dispersion in terms of like use cases. Would like to see those 10 to 100x higher in terms of the aggregate ETH spent, but that's kind of what the crypto economy looks like. Okay, so Tether, it's all stablecoin. So Tether is on... ETH. It's t- Tether doesn't have its own blockchain. No, Tether's on ETH. Primarily. Okay. T- Tether's, Tether's on, on ETH. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, so while we're talking about, about FUD, where, uh, what do you think about Tether? Uh, you know, they release attestations, but they don't, uh, haven't released an audit. I feel like if you, you know, if you and I were made a stable coin and everything was up to snuff, you and I probably would want to release an audit to let the world know that we're, uh, you know, Everything's good, 100%, you know, good to go, right? Like Tether is another one. I used to think, I, I used to be like a Tether truther. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up all this stuff. Um, I've just seen it go through enough stress tests. And, you know, in June or whenever three arrows happened, they did like an 8 billion redemption within 12 hours or 24 hours. And that was the first really big stress test that I saw that it made me feel very comfortable with it. And their attestations aren't perfect, but... Uh, I kind of take them for, for what they're worth, knowing for, you know, a lot of people in crypto that they are able to redeem their, uh, they are able to talk to uh, Bitfinex and Tether and, and actually get uh, USD redeemability into their bank account. So I'm not too concerned to them. I, you know, do I think that they probably did some 
cowboy stuff in the past, probably, um, you know, and that was, you know, I guess in their opinion, in service of bootstrapping the ecosystem and the use case of Tether. But I tend to think at, you know, 70, 80, $90 billion stablecoin scale, you've had that cleaned up. Um, and I think they have. That, that's at least my guess. Okay. TradFi funds do love to short Tether uh, for, for many different reasons. Um, I think it's mostly just personal animus against the crypto space. I don't think anybody's really made any money shorting it. Um, but it seems like a sexy thing that you can pitch to LPs. Um, that's my guess. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think it's a stable coin, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's one of those things where it's hard for it to be worth 90 cents on the dollar. It's, it's either 100 cents on the dollar or it's going to go way down, right? Like it's... It, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, all right. So, yeah. Well, I mean, so we're we are in a crypto bear market. How are your investment strategies different now? Are you, um, you know, more thorough? Uh, I mean, I presume you you always be thorough, but like, are are you just taking less risk, or do you think it's now a time to double down? What 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 is different about investing in a bear market for crypto than a bull market? I mean, the last bear market, uh, you know, I'd put all of my money into framework and ended up living in my co-founder's parents' basement for, for a year starting framework. And so I've seen like how bad it can get. Um, and you know, you have to change your strategy when things, when the market changes. Um, and so whether it's distressed stuff, whether it's, you know, more liquid stuff, whether it's being more aggressive on negotiating on the venture side. You know, those are kind of the three strategies that we run and we are just subject matter experts in this asset class. Nobody knows this stuff better than we do. Nobody knows these tokens, these companies, these people like we do. And, and so that's our advantage, especially in times like today where we have a $400 million fund. We're one of the only people with cash and it feels like we can really clean up. And so, you know, our plan is for this to be, you know, our finest hour and, and really take advantage of the situation like we did with our first fund. Um, it feels a lot more measured, seeing less projects, higher quality more reasonable valuations. Um, but, you know, things are playing out, you know, the use cases, and that's the things that we keep our eye on. And if that keeps happening, I don't really expect this to be a, a super long protracted bear market. Uh, it's already been a year, you know, more than a year. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, if it's next year, if it's 2024, I'm very confident where crypto is today, just because in the last bear market, there were literally no people, there weren't even any use cases it was hard to see the forest for the trees, but now there's a map, there's a plan, uh, and it feels like it's just a matter of time. All right. And tell me about uh, the gaming side. You said you were really excited about uh, gaming. What what sort of projects are, are there that you uh, are excited about? Yeah. So um, just if you go by process of elimination, uh, NFTs are too niche uh, for the general public. Uh, music, you know, as an, app, as an application category, hasn't really taken off in crypto. Content, I don't know if there is really a good application yet that's been built for, you know, distribution of short form content or of creator content or things like that. Games are really by process of elimination, the thing that are going to bring in a billion users over the next two years to crypto. And you have a lot of headwinds or tailwinds on that thesis. You know, if you look at Apple's um, most recent iOS update, which removed IDFA, that really crushed and IDFA is how you track uh, users across mobile, across desktop, across different devices for, you know, basically free to play advertising based business model games. The removal of that standard really hurt those people. And so, you know, some of it is people wanting to get into crypto. Some of it is people being pushed away from these web two platforms that are increasingly gatekeeping and taking more of their revenue. But we see more games pitches than anything. And these games, you know, the first cohort of them got funded in early 2021. And so. Only now are they starting to release their product, but we're seeing amazing things where people are playing these games that they love, that they think are fun, and they don't even realize that there's crypto on the back end. And so, again, it has not been a hundred million, a billion person breakout hit yet, but we're seeing things at a small scale, which are, you know, the thesis is starting to play out and you get people to come for the game. And the hope is that they come, they stay for the decentralized financial tools, the interesting things that you can do on chain, the community that's built around crypto and and that's, I think, the, the key here is how we make that pivot. But that thesis is starting to play out and it's going to bring a ton of people on chain. And more people on chain means more use cases. More use cases means more transaction fees. More transaction fees is, means the blockchains are more secure. Um, and so there's this vir virtuous cycle of, you know, you add more people in and you really get a different type of state on chain uh, as a result. And so that's what we're looking forward to to 2023, at least one thing that we are. 
and the games have to be good. They have to be good and they can't just be financialized. Yeah. Like the last cycle was um, Axie, Axie Infinity, yeah. and you know, all of these like financial napalm applications. Uh, and you know, all of the games that we see now, they're not based around this reflexive token economic loop. They're based around gameplay and maybe the swords are, are NFTs or maybe the virtual currency is actually tokens on chain. But even that is enough to give games 20, 30, 40% better monetization. In an industry the size of gaming, that adds up to a lot. What now is the biggest um, crypto game? What now? And how many I users think it's does one, it have? Roughly. I think it's one called Neopolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's got about 3 million monthly active users. It's a game like Foursquare, where you check in, you can become the mayor of places, you can you know, decorate your place that you've claimed as mayor, you can steal other people's places, and the NFTs are on Solana, and people don't even really know they're using them. Really? Um, okay. There's another one called Pixels, which is built on Stardust which is a platform portfolio company of ours for game developers. Uh, and I think they probably have like a million. Um, and it's, you know, kind of a, a typical fast, casual style game that you might see on the iOS app store. The thing to keep in mind with crypto games is that hardcore gamers hate them. Uh, they're like uniquely positioned to offend those people. But the meat of the gaming industry is these fast, casual games, you know, 30 to 50 year olds that are playing games to, you know, generate some, some passive income, have some fun, but that's kind of about it. Uh, the games don't need to be like these infinitely deep Halo style, Call of Duty style, you know, story epics. Uh, they're going to be much simpler. Mm-hmm. And if you and I were to go onto one of these games, in some ways, it's kind of a metaverse because we're doing in, in a in a world that's not real life, and we're you know uh, uh, trans- transacting with with NFTs. But is is the metaverse different than that? And then also, you said, uh, oh, part of the reason you know I, I got you know. A little, I maybe things were too good. Got a little skeptical. Was like people started talking about NFTs and and, and metaverses. Um, yeah, what what's going on with the metaverses? And then we'll just go into NFTs. It, uh, to be clear, I think you know the metaverse, even though it's pretty uh, ambiguous as to what it actually is, uh, and, and NFTs. You know, I, I think it's just like a technology standard. I think both of those things are not inherently bad. Mm-hmm. They were just really poorly defined. And yeah, you know, when I see like pictures of monkeys smoking cigars, trading for five hundred thousand dollars each. Like it just doesn't feel like the best use of our time or, or like, you know, just being honest, this doesn't feel like adoption. That feels like something else. Um, yeah. Metaverse, you know, it, it got conflated with Zuckerberg changing Facebook to meta and, you know, him building his stuff. But for me, what the metaverse is, is how can I go to a computer, you know, for free and start earning money? It is a way to, it's basically employment. Um, you know, people are not just going to go hang out in your metaverse because, you know, you have an Oculus and they have an Oculus and let's go hang out and, you know, in a virtual park, there has to be some reason, you know, maybe it's dating, maybe it's, you know, who knows, but like the most clear and present version and, and the most immediate uh, source of inspiration for people to go on chain is because they can make money. And I think that's actually a good thing. And our hope is that, you know, you're not making millions of dollars from playing these games, but you're doing something of value that the developer benefits from and you earn some sort of piece in the upside. It doesn't just go to them and you can start to build this life for yourself on chain. And that's very similar to how, you know, I live my life. You know, I have large chunk of my net worth on chain. I use all these decentralized financial services instead of, you know, getting mortgages or loans from a bank. Um, you know, the art in my house is, is NFTs and I'm sure the digital artists are benefiting from that. I'm sure the protocols are benefiting from me using it. And I built a life for myself. And that's kind of what I consider the metaverse. I don't think it really has much to do with VR or AR or any of that stuff. It just has to do with, you know, financial sovereignty. And I think really only blockchains can offer that, specifically Ethereum. Mm, right. So the biggest metaverse platform now, I think I think it's still uh, decentralized, Decentraland. You're saying that the metaverse doesn't have to be a game where we're all plugged in. No, to me, like when I use Ethereum to do DeFi or you know, do different things like send stable coins to people. That feels like the metaverse to me. If you have not used Ethereum and you're listening to this podcast, go get some ETH, send it to a wallet, send it around, play with it. It feels like magic. It's one of those transformative technology experiences that you remember the first time you tried it. And it's really interesting. And to me, I don't know how people define the metaverse, but that feels like it. Ethereum feels like magic when you use it. Mm. 
Okay. Um, going going back to FTX, like who you know, it, tr- traditional finance. If I am a a firm and you either lend me money or have a deposit with me, and I go bust, you're in trouble because what you thought was an asset was with me, and I'm trouble. So if I'm trouble, you're trouble. Uh, who? What sort of companies had um, uh, accounts with FTX? You know, a lot of individual investors. I'm sure you know you, you don't have to name specific names unless you want to. But uh, yeah, what what sorts of companies you know would have accounts with FTX? Would it be hedge funds? Would it be market makers? Would it be um, you know decentralized DAOs? Uh, or was it a pretty even balance between those three? I, I think it was on a on a you know account of customers basis, probably uh, more of of a retail and more of a you know the. Europe and other people who wanted access to derivatives and things like that on account of customer basis, it was probably skewed more to retail on a dollar value of assets on the platform. FTX was primarily a honeypot for these large trading firms that needed access to derivatives that wanted to do different types of uh, hedging activities for, you know, either locked positions or things that they were doing on chain. Um, and that were, was really the people who got hit the hardest. You know, you can see galaxy, you can see winter mute, you can see Galois capital, you can see a lot of the, you know, MGNR got hit. Uh, and these are all crypto native prop trading firms. Um, really, it was a honeypot for them. And those were the people who were also the most ardent believers in the multi-chain future, the Solana vision, the SBF is emperor of the universe vision. Um, and it's unfortunate, but they all kind of got burnt as a result. Um, and we didn't lose any money on the platform. I believe we did have an account at one point, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a honeypot for those types of people specifically. Mm-hmm. So if there are whales who have accounts on FTX and what they thought was an asset is is in the immediate sense with zero it may, you know may get you know some amount of, of sense of, uh, of on the dollar in the in the longer term you'd imagine that that's triggers some selling pressure of their other assets you know, bitcoin ethereum it, go, it goes down the list we have had you know a, a rapid um, collapse in prices uh, you know a, a crash in prices um, you know the, the few days around FTX, but for over a month now, it's been pretty stable prices in Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, to what do you attribute that? Uh, pretty much, you know, it's kind of a standstill. Why, why is that the case? I I don't know if it's been a standstill. If if you look at um, you know, the June Celsius three arrows Luna collapse versus the FTX collapse, there's been a lot of dispersion. Ethereum has not made new lows. Ethereum hit 900 in June has not gone back there since Bitcoin hit 17K in June, has gone below that since. I think it's trading below that right now, actually. Um, yeah, it is. And, you know, Coinbase has just continually hit new all-time lows. It's, it's valued at less than $7.5 right now. This is a new type of market. I've never seen this in crypto. Usually in crypto, everything's just correlated to one. But because there's VC unlocks, because, you know, Wall Street thinks Coinbase is like FTX, because... The narrative is shifting from utility and application and adoption on Ethereum versus, you know, digital pet gold, pet rock on Bitcoin. The market is just changing drastically. And so I wouldn't say it's been a standstill. I think the market is kind of telling you where things are going. Mm-hmm. What do you like in crypto that's not on the Ethereum blockchain? I mean, there's good, uh, like I respect Cosmos. It feels like they're doing really good work towards decentralization that honors a lot of the core values of crypto. Um, there's a lot of really good application teams, even teams that are on, you know, Solana or, you know, other different types of chains. Um, Polygon is, is interesting and has a really good BD team that's focused on games. Um, I think at the application layer, that's kind of where the things that, even though they're on Ethereum, like I, I gravitate the most naturally towards. And then, you know, the new learning area for me uh, is just games. Um, and those are people that have very little crypto context. Not only do they have cri- little crypto context in terms of like how to build it, but they don't have a great context as to what it's useful for. And so designing new types of economic models that sit on top of Ethereum that are inherent to a game, um, that's the other stuff that I enjoy working on and, and you know, have a lot of respect for. Mm. All right, now the opposite question. What do you think is a project in crypto or, or an asset, uh, a blockchain or a crypto coin that you think is kind of the most overrated? It has a lo- still a long following, but you think it's long been disproven to be of anything of value. Let me, let me pull up uh, <laughs> CoinMarketCap. I mean, Jesus, there's like, 
I, you know, and I'm not trying to be negative here. I, I just don't like things that give crypto a bad name. And I think one of the th- main learnings that I have from last year is that like, I'm, I'm not in crypto. I'm an Ethereum investor. Um, cause Ethereum is the thing that embodies the values that I care about. And I think also has the highest chance of a, you know, really big outcome. But, you know, I think Dogecoin is pretty embarrassing for the industry. I think Cardano is very embarrassing for the industry. These are both top 10 coins. Um, XRP is embarrassing. Ripple. Um, you know, yeah, Ripple. Um, a lot of the base layer chains that have very little usage and high valuations. Shiba Inu token is still worth 5 billion. There's a lot of things that are embarrassing, but, you know, we've all like, it's like saying, uh, I'm a growth stock investor. Yeah. You know, what does that mean? Like, do you have one of the good companies or do you have one of the bad companies? Um, and I, obviously I like to think that I have, uh, the former, but there's a lot of the latter in crypto as well. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, you said you respect, um, Cosmos and Polygon. Polygon, do you have any investments in things that are not associated with Ethereum? Uh, or if you do, what percentage is it? Very low. Very low. Okay. So you are, you are an Ethereum true and true. I don't know if I would call myself a maxi or anything like that, but I've just been in this industry for most of my adult life at this point, you know, 10, 10 years. I'm just too old for, you know, playing around with things like, you know, Bitcoin's great, but it's not doing anything. It's not really technology. Um, Cardano, you know, Dogecoin, Shiba Inu coin. Like, I actually want to go home and be proud of being in the industry and be able to point to use cases. And I think those are actually direct headwinds to, to me being able to do that. And so my hope is that Bitcoin kind of ossifies between, you know, things that really, or crypto ossifies between things that really embody its values. And we kind of sunset the other ones or at least stop, you know, publicly caring about them. Vance, it's been a great to get a chance to pick your brain. Um, people can find you on Twitter at Pythianism. Uh, you, you very active and post a lot of uh, interesting, interesting takes. Um, yeah, kind of. Why is what's Pythianism? Uh, that's that's an interesting one. It was uh, it was an old randomly generated email of mine, uh, and I just decided that it sounded cool, but it sounds mysterious. So people uh, people give a lot of credence, I think. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Well, Vance, thank you, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Thanks.